Gospels to Exodus chapter 11 this evening, Exodus chapter 11. As you're finding your place in the book of Exodus, I would just remind you of what uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 10 tells us after citing three different instances from the people of Israel's journey in the wilderness Paul makes this comment, these things were written for our example, for our learning, and for our admonition. And so this evening as we come to a portion of scripture that took place some 3,400 years ago uh, to a people in a land that most of us have never been, we may ask ourselves, what is the practical application or help that comes from this? And that is where we understand that not only was God working in the nation of Israel historically, but he was also painting a picture spiritually of lessons that you and I can take away for our own Christian life. I believe this text tonight of Exodus chapter 11 is one such passage in that there is a lesson for us in it that we can use today. Exodus 11, beginning in verse number 1, we'll read all ten verses in this chapter. And the Lord said unto Moses, Yet will I bring one plague more upon Pharaoh and upon Egypt. Afterwards he will let you go. Hence, when he shall let you go, he shall surely thrust you out, hence altogether. Speak now in the ears of the people. And let every man borrow of his neighbor and every woman of her neighbor jewels of silver and jewels of gold. And the Lord gave the people favor in the sight of the Egyptians. Moreover, the man Moses was very great in the land of Egypt, in the sight of Pharaoh's servants, and in the sight of the people. And Moses said, Thus saith the Lord, About midnight will I go out into the midst of Egypt, and all the firstborn in the land of Egypt shall die. From the firstborn of Pharaoh that sitteth upon his throne, even unto the firstborn of the maidservant that is behind the mill, and all the firstborn of beasts. And there shall be a great cry throughout all the land of Egypt, such as there was none like it, nor shall be like it any more. But against any of the children of Israel shall not a dog move his tongue, against man or beast, that you may know how the Lord doth put a difference between the Egyptians and Israel. And all these thy servants shall come down unto me, and bow down themselves unto me, saying, Get thee out, and all the people that follow thee. And after that I will go out. And he went out from Pharaoh in a great anger. And the Lord said unto Moses, Pharaoh shall not hearken unto you, that my wonders may be multiplied in the land of Egypt. And Moses and Aaron did all these wonders before Pharaoh. And the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart so that he would not let the children of Israel go out of his land. Let's pray. Dear Lord, once again, we want to be careful to bathe this moment in prayer. We know that much error has been taught and preached down through the centuries because of a wrong interpretation of Scripture. Our heart's desire tonight, Lord, is not to fabricate some new truth or even to customize something to our own liking, but simply to uncover and to discover what you have said and what you have demonstrated and how you want it to be applied to our lives today. So I pray that you would help me in this sacred task of proclaiming your word today. 
Lord, may I interpret it accurately and may I apply it appropriately. God, help me to do this in Jesus' name. Amen. In this brief chapter, we find the announcement of the tenth and final judgment from God that is going to come on Pharaoh and on the nation of Egypt. As we know, that is that plague, that final judgment of the death of the firstborn. We will focus on that plague when it is fulfilled in the next chapter. This is the prophecy, this is the prediction, this is the announcement that it is coming. Chapter 12 is the fulfillment. And so in chapter 12, we're going to dig into this last judgment, this final plague, and see some more details about it. For our study tonight, I want us to consider what God says to the Israelites in verses 2 and 3. In somewhat of a parenthetical statement to the text, it could possibly be passed over except for the fact that it is repeated in the following chapter and it was predicted in a previous chapter. And so verses 2 and 3, as I said, on the road to the final judgment, we could easily read past those and not think much about it. God gave them favor. They, uh, they asked for jewels and silver and precious golds, and the Egyptians gave it to them and they went out from the land. But when we take a step back and we take the book in its whole, we notice that there's a repetition of this exact same statement. It is repeated in the following chapter. It was predicted in a previous chapter. To feel the weight of this repetition from God, I want us to read those cross-references. And so let's go back to chapter 11, verses 2 and 3. We'll read those first. Speak now in the ears of the people, and let every man borrow of his neighbor and every woman of her neighbor jewels of silver and jewels of gold. And the Lord gave the people favor in the sight of the Egyptians. Now, if you would, let's look at chapter 12. Verses 35 and 36. Remember, chapter 11 is the prophecy. Chapter 12 is the fulfillment. Chapter 12, verse 35. And the children of Israel did according to the word of Moses, and they borrowed of the Egyptians jewels of silver and jewels of gold and raiment. And the Lord gave the people favor in the sight of the Egyptians so that they lent unto them such things as they required and they spoiled the Egyptians. So there we find it for the second time, almost the exact phraseology. But as we're taking in the entire book, we got to go back to chapter 3, verses 21 and 22, where we will find that in the nearly exact same language, God foretold this happening before Moses foretold it to Pharaoh and the people of Israel. Exodus chapter 3 verse 21, And I will give this people favor in the sight of the Egyptians. And it shall come to pass that when you go, you shall not go empty. But every woman shall borrow of her neighbor and of her that sojourneth in her house jewels of silver and jewels of gold and raiment. And ye shall put them upon your sons, upon your daughters, and ye shall spoil the Egyptians. And so all three passages say the exact same thing. God says, I will give you favor with the Egyptians, and I want you to use it. 
in all that I'm doing in the land of Egypt, in my redemption of you as a people of Israel, in my judgment on the nation of Egypt, I am also going to give you a pocket of favor among those people with whom you have been their servants now for some hundreds of years, and you're going to ask them for things, and those people are going to freely give it to you to the point where you are going to take the majority of the wealth of the nation of Egypt out of Egypt with you when you leave and go into the wilderness. And the fact that this is repeated three times in the first 12 chapters of Exodus is attention-grabbing. It is something that we need to pay attention to. Why would God give his people favor with the Egyptians? Why would he allow them to take the riches of the country just by asking? Not by force, not by sword, not by hook or by crook, but simply by asking them for their possessions, they literally are able to come out of that country with an abundance of possessions. The answer, I believe, is manifold, but there's one primary purpose. So let me give you, let me give you the secondary causes, I believe, that lead up to it. Uh, first, it was God's plan for Israel and nationhood. God began the nation of Israel in the life of one man named Abraham in Genesis chapter 12. And he called that one man Abraham who had no children. And he says, I'm going to make out of you a great nation. I'm going to multiply you as the stars of the sky, as the sand of the sea. I'm going to give you land. I'm going to magnify you to a point that you will become a blessing to the entire world. Well, that's quite an accomplishment, isn't it? To make a nation out of one person, how would you do it? Here's your homework for this week. Go start a nation. Well, you'd say that that would take a lot of time. That would take a lot of people. That would take a lot of money to start up a nation, correct? And so God has a plan and a path for nationhood. If you go all the way back there to Genesis chapter 15, God actually gave Abraham the game plan way back then. Genesis chapter 15, verse number 13 says, And he said unto Abram, Know of a surety or of a certainty that thy seed shall be a stranger in a land that is not theirs, and shall serve them, and they shall afflict them four hundred years. And also that nation, which is Egypt, whom they shall serve, will I judge, and afterwards shall they come out with great substance. And thou shalt go to thy fathers in peace, and shall be buried in a good old age. And so that was God's plan for Israel's nationhood. Part of the path or the journey of nationhood was to take this family of some 70 people down into Egypt and to incubate them there. They go in under the favor of Joseph. They, they live beside of or within the nation of Egypt as equals for many years. But then after Joseph dies and the Pharaoh that knew Joseph and another generation passes on, they begin to oppress the people of Israel and the people of Israel become their servants. Yet God is still in that plan because God is growing them numerically. And so that answers one question, how do we turn one man into a nation? Well, we've got to multiply. Well, they've got 400 years of multiplication. 
So much so that by the time that they leave the nation of Israel, we know by the numbers there were over 600,000 men who were there. And so if there was one woman and one uh, child or one boy and one girl for everyone, they're, they're nearly 3 million people now. So that was part of God's plan. But while they are incubating in Egypt, they are slaves, they're servants, they're not making money and building wealth. And so how would they finance this startup nation? Well, God had a plan to take the wealth out of Egypt. That's my first, first uh, uh, cause there as we lead up to the main one. Uh, second, it was a Jew who saved Egypt from economic destruction. It was a Jew who saved Egypt from economic destruction. Now, I won't take the time tonight, but if you go back and read Genesis chapter 41, uh, there Pharaoh has had a dream. Nobody can interpret the dream. His butler says, you know, there was a Hebrew in jail that I was with, and he interpreted my dream and the, and, and, and the, the chef's dream, and they came true. And so Pharaoh calls for Joseph, and Joseph hears the dream, and he interprets the dream. He says, here's the interpretation of this. You're going to have seven years of plenty. I mean, you're going to have bumper crops for seven years. But after that seven years, you're going to have seven years of famine like you've never seen before in the history of the nation. If you don't prep and prepare in the seven years of plenty, you won't make it through the seven years of famine. And so Pharaoh recognizes the Spirit of God on Joseph. And he says, Joseph, you're going to be in charge of this. You're going to be my prime minister. And so for seven years, Joseph begins collecting grain and putting it in storehouses and adding it up. And in Genesis 41, it tells us that in that first year, uh, the Egyptians ate up all their grain. In the second year, they spent all of their money. In the third year, they traded all of their cattle and they traded all of their land just for food. So in, in, by the midpoint of that famine... Pharaoh owned all the land in Egypt because nobody could afford to live on it or to eat. And Joseph relocated them all into cities, gave them grain to begin start planting, and he literally is the cause that Egypt was a nation at the time of this departure. And so I would say one of the reasons... One of the reasons why they get to walk out there with the wealth of Egypt is Egypt wouldn't have had that wealth if it hadn't been for the Jews. Another cause is that these Israelites served and suffered as slaves and as slave labor for years without any pay. If you were to go back to Exodus chapter 1, we learn about the plight of the Israelites. Not only had they been slaving, but they were slaving under hard labor and toil. They were making the bricks and building uh, the trophy cities uh, for the Pharaoh. Not only that, they were persecuted people. And so in Exodus chapter 1, we learn that the Egyptians not only are using them as slaves, but now they are trying to commit infanticide and to kill all the male-born Hebrews that are born because they're beginning to outnumber or be able to the numbers of the Egyptians and so in some ways the reason that God gives the Israelites favor is because that was part of God's plan to nationhood that was uh, part of the investment that was made by the Jews years ago and part of it is a repayment for their slave labor down for the years while these are contributing factors I propose that they are not the primary purpose 
As we read Exodus chapter 11, verses 2 and 3, and we see that God's going to give them favor with the people so that they can borrow of their neighbors or ask of their neighbors and carry the riches of the nation out. Yes, it was part of God's plan for the nation. Yes, uh, part of that wealth is owed to, to their Jewish investment. Yes, part of that is repayment for their slave. But I believe that the main reason was because they needed those supplies to build a dwelling place for God called the tabernacle. That seems to be the main purpose as to why God gave the Israelites favor with the Egyptians. Let me, let me just help you out here for a second. I know this is going slow, but it's going somewhere. So if you, you'll hang with me, I'm going to weave this thing together, and I think the payoff will be good. God gave them favor because God was not just leading them out to free them. You remember what the request was every time, let my people go that they may serve me they may serve me so God's purpose and plan was not just to liberate the Israelites from Egypt to turn them loose for no purpose or for their own personal pursuit but it was so that they could come out and freely worship their God Jehovah Elohim and worship him according to his design for his glory and part of that was that they had a place of worship and sacrifice called the tabernacle and so they needed supplies for that tabernacle. The favor from God that got them the riches from Egypt was not just for their consumption. God didn't just do this to pay them back so that they could go into the wilderness with bling and look like the rich kids on the eastern block. God was giving them this not just for their consumption, but for the construction of God's house on earth. And by the way, isn't that how God often operates? He will give through you what he wouldn't necessarily give to you. As believers, as God's people, we are stewards. And a lot of times God wants to funnel funds and goods and resources through us for a greater purpose. And that's what he does with the people of Israel. To validate this hypothesis, look with me, if you would, at Exodus chapter 35. As we go on into the book of Exodus, we follow the children of Israel in their journey. They escape through the Red Sea. They come to Mount Sinai. They receive the Ten Commandments. And then Moses receives the pattern for the tabernacle, the house of worship or the tent of worship that they are to construct and they are to erect. But where do they get the supplies? Exodus chapter 35 tells us that they took an offering, beginning in verse 5. Take ye from among you an offering unto the Lord. Whosoever is of a willing heart, let him bring it, an offering of the Lord. What do they need? Gold, silver, brass, blue, purple, scarlet, fine linen, goat's hair, ram skins, dyed red, badger skins, shittim wood, oil for the light, spices for anointing oil and for the sweet incense, and onyx stones and stones to be set for the ephod and for the breastplate. Oh, sounds like a lot of stuff that they carried out of Egypt, doesn't it? So God was giving his people favor so that they could use their favorable opportunity to get the resources they needed to be able to take up an offering to have the materials to build the house of God. Now watch, watch how much favor God gave to them. 
the people, when they were tasked with giving a free will offering, whoever was of a willing heart to give it, gave so much, gave so much that they had to say, stop, it's enough. Chapter 36, verses 3 through 7. And they received to Moses all the offering which the children of Israel had brought for the work of the service of the sanctuary to make it with all. And they brought yet unto him a free offerings every morning. And all the wise men that wrought all the work of the sanctuary came every man from his work which they made. And they spake unto Moses, saying, The people bring much more than enough for the service of the work which the Lord commanded to make. And Moses gave commandment. And they caused it to be proclaimed throughout the camp, saying, Let neither man nor woman make any more work for the offering of the sanctuary. For the people were restrained from bringing For the stuff they had was sufficient for all the work to make it and too much. And so here we find that these children of Israel were given favor before they left the country because God wanted them to ask their neighbors for precious possessions, gold and silver and jewels and spices and materials. Why? Because God had a plan for them to construct a tabernacle or a house of worship for his, and they needed these materials. And so they are like a conduit, and they take the materials that they got from Egypt, and when offering time comes, they come and lay them down at Moses' feet to the point where Moses says, that's enough, we don't need any more, we've got more than enough. So we've got a direct connection there. But beyond that, as we fan out into Scripture and we say, okay, that looks like it makes sense in the book of Exodus. I mean, that's the only place that these slaves could have gotten all of these precious materials to build this most beautiful tabernacle in the wilderness. Is it, is it a pattern in Scripture? And I would say it is a pattern in Scripture. In fact, in 1 Kings chapter 5, we learn that Solomon is now going to build a house for God. In the wilderness, they built a tent. It was a mobile worship center. They were able to take it down, pack it up, carry it to the next location, erect it, stand it up, anchor it down, and they had it. But now that they are into the land permanently, they say, why do we get to dwell in houses and God dwells in a tent? Let's build him a house. It was placed in the heart of David, but God told David, you're a bloody man, you're a man of war. Uh, I, I, I won't let you build the temple, but your son will be a man of peace. There will not be war in his time. He will get to build the temple. And so Solomon enters into his kingdom. He enters into his kingship, and him, his agenda is to build the temple. And do you know what God does for Solomon? He gives him favor. He gives him favor to get the materials that he needs. In 1 Kings chapter 5, it says that Solomon sent to King Hiram of Tyre and told him of his intentions to build the temple in Jerusalem. And that Tyre said, hey, look, you can have all of the cedars of Lebanon that you need. Not only that, I will send craftsmen and workmen who will come and help you build it. And we find this pattern beginning to merge in Scripture that when God wants to build his house, somewhere along the way he gives the people who are to build it some favor so that they can get the materials that they need to build it. say, okay, I I, I think I see it in Exodus. I I see it a little bit in, in Kings. But is it really a pattern? Yeah, it is a pattern. How about Ezra chapter 1? 
Do you know who Ezra is, don't you? Ezra was the one who was tasked with rebuilding the temple in Jerusalem. After the Babylonians had come in and attacked the city and torn down the walls and the gates, they tore, <coughs> they tore down the temple because the temple was wrapped in gold and precious materials. But now it is time to rebuild it. Watch again, Ezra chapter 1. Now in the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, that the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah might be fulfilled, the Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia, that he made a proclamation throughout all his kingdom and put it also in writing, saying, Thus saith Cyrus, king of Persia, yet a Gentile king nonetheless, just like the Gentiles of Egypt, just like the Gentile king Hiram from Tyre, Thus saith Cyrus, king of Persia, the Lord God of heaven hath given me all the kingdoms of the earth, and he hath charged me to build him a house at Jerusalem, which is in Judah. Who is there among you of all his people? His God be with him, and let him go up to Jerusalem, which is in Judah, and build the house of the Lord, God of Israel. He is the God which is in Jerusalem. And whosoever remaineth in any place where he sojourneth, let the men of his place help him with silver and with gold, and with goods, and with beasts, besides the freewill offering for the house of God that is in Jerusalem. Then rose up the chief of the fathers of Judah, and Benjamin, and the priests, and the Levites, and all of them whose spirit God had raised up to go build the house of the Lord, which is in Jerusalem. And all they that were about them strengthened their hands with vessels of silver, and gold, and goods, and with beasts, and with precious things, besides all that was willingly offered also Cyrus the king brought forth the vessels of the house of the Lord, which Nebuchadnezzar had brought forth out of Egypt and had put them in the house of his gods. Even those did Cyrus king of Persia bring forth by the hand of Mithridath the treasurer and numbered them unto Sheshbazar the prince of Judah. And so you get the sense there in verse 10, 30 basins of gold, silver basins of a second sort, 410 other vessels of a thousand. I know, I know that's a lot of information to take in. I just want you to get this in your mind. Anytime God wants to build his house, he gives his people favor to get the resources that they need to build it. He did it for the Israelites in Egypt. He did it for Solomon with Hiram. He did it for Ezra with Cyrus. He did it for Nehemiah with Artaxerxes. We could read in Nehemiah chapter 2 that when Nehemiah is going back to rebuild the walls around Jerusalem and around the temple, uh, that God gives him favor with this Gentile king, and that Gentile king gives him a blank check and says, you can get whatever you want from whoever you want to go and rebuild this holy site. And so I say all that to say it appears that when God wants to build him a dwelling place, that he gives favor with others to supply the materials. Say, okay, good, good, good. I see that pattern in Scripture. But what does that mean to me? How does that apply to us today? Well, here's where we make the application. God is still building a dwelling place on earth. It's not called the tabernacle. It's not called the temple. It's not called the second temple. It's not called Herod's temple. It's called the church. And Jesus said in Matthew 16, 18, I will, anybody know what the next word is? I will build my church. 
And the gates of hell will not prevail against it. So just like that generation of Jews who were coming out of Egypt were going to build the tabernacle and God gave them favor to borrow possession so that they would have the materials needed to build that dwelling place in the wilderness for God, Jesus Christ came to the earth and he came to build a church and he is still building his church today. The church isn't finished until the Lord Jesus comes back. Like the tabernacle and the temple of old, the church is the house of God in the world today. 1 Timothy 3.15 says the church, which is the house of the living God. And God still gives his people favor to build it. You say, okay, your pattern in the Old Testament, I saw it there. I see that the church is God's dwelling place in the world today and he's building it. But does God still give his people favor to build that church. Well, who's the chief architect? Jesus, right? Do you know what the Bible says in Luke 2.52? And Jesus increased in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and man. And so Jesus lays the foundation. God gives him a measure of favor. We know that he was turned against and that he was crucified, but there is no doubt, the Bible says, that God gave him favor in those years in his life where he was able to preach and able to see converts and able to make disciples who would become, as Ephesians says, the foundation stones of the house of God. That was Jesus. What about the rest of the disciples. Well, check this out. If you're adventurous tonight, let's go find our way to the New Testament book of Acts chapter 2. Acts chapter 2. So here's the premise. The premise is that when he built his house, he gives his people favor so that they can get the resources to do that. We see it in the Old Testament. We've proven it there. We're trying to figure out if that still works in the New Testament. It appears to be because Jesus was given favor, but was Jesus the only one given favor? Well, according to Acts chapter 2, Verses 46 and 47, it says that they continuing daily with one accord in the temple and breaking bread from house to house did eat their meat with gladness and singleness of heart, praising God and having, what's that next word? Favor with all the people and the Lord added to the church daily such as should be saved. Astounding, isn't it? I mean, that's building the church. The, the dwelling of God's not being built out of silver and gold and ram skins dyed red today. It's not being built out of stones and timbers. The house of God today is being built out of people. And God is giving his disciples favor with them so that the church was being added to every single day in its beginning in Jerusalem. But now... Here is the primary difference from the tabernacle to the church. It is the building materials. No longer is it wood and stone and precious metals and jewels. Now what God is building his dwelling place out of are men and women and boys and girls. That's the materials that God's building his house out of. And so just like the Israelites of old had favor with people to gather the materials that they needed so that they could build the dwelling place of God, if God is doing a like thing today, then he's giving his people favor today to be able to build his house. Now, let's go one more time, one more place, Ephesians chapter 2, to tie this all together. I appreciate you staying with me through this line of study. 
Ephesians chapter 2, the Apostle Paul is giving us some details about the formation and the structure of the New Testament church. Jesus introduces it, I will build my church, the gates of hell will not prevail against it. We find the church launching out there in chapter 2, it begins to grow. And we see that there are these guys called the apostles but then those apostles pass away, and, and, and Paul gives us some insight in Ephesians chapter 2 on what all of that business is about. And he says this, verse 19, Now therefore ye are no more strangers and foreigners, but fellow citizens with the saints and of the household of God, and are built upon the foundation of the apostles, and prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone. And so Paul says, get in your mind the structure of the church. Jesus is the chief cornerstone. In that day and time when they would build a building, they didn't start with a footer, they started with a cornerstone. And the cornerstone was where you got your square and your level and your right and all of those things straight. And if that cornerstone was off, then the rest of the building would be off. And so Jesus is described as the chief cornerstone. He is the first block that is set and everything else is pulled off of that. But the apostles have a special role too. They are foundation stones. And so around that first cornerstone, you would have other foundational stones that are laid out to be able to support the structure that is going to be built upon it. And so we have these apostles who are foundational to the church. That's why they could do some things that you and I couldn't do. They could heal the sick. They could speak in tongues. They could be inspired to write scriptures. But after they passed away, so did that role because they were foundational and the foundation was laid. So what goes on top of the foundation? Well, if you've ever built a house, you know that we start with the footer and then we'll go with block or a stem wall and then we transition from stone or concrete to timbers, right? And we put our joists in, we put our flooring, we frame up our walls and we can look at that house or that building and say there's different layers and levels to this. Well, there's a similar description to the church. Jesus is the cornerstone, the apostles are the foundation stones Verse 21, in whom all the building fitly framed together groweth unto an holy temple in the Lord, in whom, that is in the Lord, you also are builded together for an habitation of God through the Spirit. Every Christian that has came after the apostles are built into the structure of the church. We are the framework of the church. We are the materials of God's earthly habitation. God does not live in this building. He does not live in stained glass and steeples. He lives in the regenerate believer. And when you and I are here in this building, the church is here. And when we leave, the church is not. The meeting place is the only thing that is left here. And so when we start putting this together... The idea that I want you to get is the fact that God is building his church. He wants you to have a part in that. And so he's going to give you some favor with some people because he wants more building material. And that favor 
that he gives you with that person is the open door for you to share the gospel. You ever met somebody that you couldn't share the gospel with? I've ran into them. I've met some people who, who were prejudiced against me just because I was a preacher. Mm, their guard was up. We moved in in Colorado. Our neighbor was a, was a deputy sheriff, unsaved man. And, uh, and so we, we moved in and we saw him out in the yard and I introduced myself and, and told him what I did. And man, immediately his guard went up. I don't go in for all of that. I'm not interested. I mean, before I had said anything. He made it clear that he did not want to have a conversation about God or about Jesus or about church. I didn't have the opportunity to witness to him. But do you know what happened? We lived there the entire time that we were in Colorado with those same neighbors. Well, neighbor Jim happened to be dating a woman named Adria. Adria had gotten saved earlier in her life, but she was away from the Lord. Adria and Jim were living together, and we just befriended them and were neighbors and said hi and tried to love on them and be kind to them. And one day, they asked if they could come see me, and they, I said, sure, and they came over, and they said, you know, we've been talking about we want to get married, and you're the only person that we can think of that we would want to marry, marry us. And so I sat down with them, explained to them marriage, talked to them about the, the, why we get married and how that it is the picture of Christ's relationship to the church. And that's when I found out that Adria was saved. I asked them, have you ever, have you ever done that? And Adria, in tears, started crying, yeah, I've, I've done that, but I've gotten away from the Lord. And Jim said, mm, I've never done that. And I said, well, I'll go ahead and marry you. I'll help you get it right. And so I, I married them. And then during that time, we also had had our first son, Jack. And Jack was a cute little fellow back then, not so much now, but back then, really cute. And neighbor Jim loved Jack, man. He just thought he was the best. And over the years, it just kept getting closer and closer and closer together. And God was giving us favor. Adria, after I married them, started coming to Glenwood Springs Baptist Church. I'm telling you, Adria got on fire for the Lord. She began teaching a children's Sunday school class. She started a women's ministry in the local jail. She was going out visiting and ministering to seniors. I mean, she was just in it. And Jim was sitting at home wanting no part of it. Until one Easter, a little boy neighbor who had favor with Jim asked him to come to church for Easter Sunday. And I'll tell you, I still remember that Sunday I was preaching on the forensic evidence of the resurrection because they had to doctor the books, remember, because they paid off the guards to lie and say that Jesus' disciples came and took them at night. And they said, we'll pay you, but we'll tell a different story. And I, I pointed out how that if there was a forensic accountant, they would have been able to go in and find this discrepancy in the books that was unaccounted for. And that police officer, that detective who didn't want anything to do with the Lord. God had been working in his heart, building favor among our family and his family, so that when I gave the invitation that day, no, when I ended the invitation, I gave the invitation, and people came forward. We had several people get saved that day, and I'm ending the invitation. And neighbor Jim leaves his seat and walks up to the front. I turn it over to the song leader who's leading the singing, and I take him around the corner, and he tells me that he wants to get saved that he's ready to put his faith and trust in Jesus Christ. 
and I had the opportunity to lead neighbor Jim to the Lord. I baptized him in the river sometime after that, and he and Adria were faithful in church until we left Colorado. So I'm just telling you, God gave favor to the people of Israel because he wanted them to be able to borrow the resources they needed to build his tabernacle. And God will give you some favor with some people because he's still building his house. And there's still materials out there that he wants in here. And so you and I need to be bold like these Israelites. Can you imagine? Can you imagine being the slave and going up to the neighbor Egyptian's house and say, Hey, can, can I have that gold dish? Can I have that silver vase? Uh, can I have that ram's skin that's over there? That's what God told them to do. And lo and behold, they were not told no so that they could carry those materials out and build that tabernacle in the wilderness. And so this evening, who has God been giving you favor with that he wants you to go and ask them, not for silver, not for gold, but about their soul? Ask them if they know the Lord Jesus Christ, if they died today, if they would go to heaven. And if not, if you could share with them the greatest truth you've ever had in your life, the gospel of Jesus Christ. Because he will build his church and the gates of hell will not prevail. Let's pray. Dear Lord, thank you so much for these life lessons, these spiritual lessons that you give us. Sometimes... Like a, like a silver mine, we've got to get in and dig it out, mine it out, sift through it, sort through it, make sure that we've got all the parts in the right places. Father, I trust that we have done that tonight, that we've labored in your word, that we've slowed our pace and that we've given you our attention so that we could dig in and discover why three times you told us that you gave them favor to get these materials and so that we could see that there's a pattern that you developed in Scripture to where you give your people favor when you want to build your dwelling place to remind us tonight that you are still giving us favor with somebody somewhere so that we can share the gospel. Father, help us to make the most of this God-given favor just like the Israelites did. Help us not to be reticent or timid about asking people about their salvation, but may we go out and may we use the favor that you've given us with certain people in our lives to engage them in that conversation and to bring them into the house of God. Father, I thank you for the favor that you've given many here tonight, and I pray that you would help us to use that in the days ahead to lead people to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. And I pray that in his name. Amen.